Well, good morning. Good morning. <laughs> it's good seeing all of you guys. Welcome uh, to Forest Park. If you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians. Uh, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. And so let's go uh, to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your incredible mercy and grace that you have lavished on us by sending your Son to die on the cross for our sins. While we were dead in our trespasses, while we were enemies of you waging war, that is when you, Lord Jesus, laid down your life for us. And you called us and made us alive, and you've made us your people. And we get to gather to make much of you, to worship you. And we get to come as the body of Christ and celebrate your body that was given to us, your blood that was shed for us. And Lord, as we approach your scripture, can you uh, reveal yourself to us? Can you open up our eyes, our ears, our hearts, and our minds? Can this message um, not just minister to our head, but may it also minister to our heart? Can it be more than just head knowledge that we receive, but can it stir our hearts and our affections to a greater love for you and a greater love for one another. So please, Lord, minister to us. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we're continuing our series through uh, the letter of 1 Corinthians, Paul is now coming to the eighth of ten major issues. So we're almost in the home stretch. Um, but the issue that Paul is addressing here is the issue of the abuse of the Lord's Supper. And again, what we're seeing, kind of what we see last week, again, what's happening is this church is adopting uh, the values of their worldly culture, the values of social class. Like the whole head covering had to do with a, a separation of elitism, showing how wealthy people are trying to cause division among the poor and the wealthy. And again, we find ourselves the same issue that they're dealing with is with the Lord's Supper. And again, in their abuse of the Lord's Supper, we see a divide between the social elite and the poor and how how they are approaching the Lord's Supper. Now, in the early church, the church celebrated the Lord's Supper in the context of a meal. So when the church came to, to gather around the Lord's Supper, uh, more than likely they met in someone's house, and the actual meal began with the breaking of the bread. And after the breaking of the bread, they would share the meal together, and then the meal would end with the drinking of wine from the cup. And more than likely, the person whose house they, they met in was, must have been a wealthy Christian who had a large house, enough, large enough to, to house everybody for the church to gather in their house. So, so here's the outline. Here's how Paul is going to address it as he's addressing the abuse of the Lord's Supper. First of all, he's going to reveal to us the underlying problem, what's actually going on in their abuse of the Lord's Supper. Then he's going to reveal to us the, the doctrine of the Lord's Supper. Like, what is the Lord's Supper? What does it symbolize? What does it mean? What does it ultimately 
point to, then he's going to reveal to us what should be the appropriate approach to the Lord's Supper. Like, like what should we do when we come to the table? And then lastly, he's going to wrap it up by giving the church in Corinth like a practical solution to their underlying problem. So what we're going to try to do is we're going to all ultimately look at the original context and then try to apply their original context to us and our 21st century context. So, so here is the underlying problem. Look at verse 17. It says this, Now in giving this instruction, I do not praise you since you come together not for the better but for the worse. For to begin with, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. Indeed, it is necessary that there be factions among you, so that those who are approved may be recognized among you. And when you come together, then, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. For at the meal, each one eats his own supper, so one person is hungry, while another gets drunk. Don't you have homes in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I praise you? I do not praise you in this matter. So Paul bluntly explains the problem. Like when the church gathers, when they gather around the table, they should edify one another. They should build up one another and encourage one another. And as a result, people should walk away better and encourage. But what's happening in the church of Corinth? Instead of the, the, the members encouraging one another and building up one another and celebrating the Lord's Supper together, that's not what's happening. They walk away, Paul says, worse off. They walk away discouraged. So then the first question is, okay, how, what's happening that's making them walking away worse off and discouraged? Notice what, what Paul says. He says in verse 18, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. So in other words, like when the church is gathering, they're supposed to be united in their gathering around the table. But they're not united. What's happening? They're actually divided. And, and here's the reality about division. Division never encourages. Division always discourages. And you're like, okay, how's their division? Because when the church is gathering, it seems like what's happening is the wealthier Christians are not gathering to eat the Lord's Supper, but rather they're eating their own supper. So what's happening is they're coming and they're gathering in, in a person's house. They're bringing their own food. And instead of bringing food for all to share, they're bringing their own food and they're eating it. And as they're eating it, what's really happening is they're eating their own supper. And those who have no food to share, what are they doing? They're kind of walking in and they're watching everybody eat and then they say amen and they're done and they're like, what just happened? And Paul is saying what's happening is the haves are feasting and getting drunk while the have-nots are just sitting on the sideline watching everything unfold. And instead of feeling like they're part of the church, they're in a sense say, I guess we're not part of this church. And so as a result... Really what's happening, like in the previous thing with head coverings, it is drawing a distinction between the haves and the have-nots. 
between the wealthy and the poor. And they're treating the Lord's Supper as if it's a private dinner party. And Paul says, really what's happening is you're not celebrating the Lord's Supper here. You're celebrating a private dinner party where you're flaunting your wealth with the fancy food that you're eating and rejecting those poor, those who have nothing. And think about their actions and how their actions actually contradicts the Lord's Supper. Because what does the Lord's Supper represent? It represents the work of Jesus on the cross where he, where all of us at the foot of the cross, there's this level ground. In other words, whether you are a wealthy Christian or whether you are a poor Christian, at the foot of the cross you're all equal. Why? Because you're both sinners in need of a Savior. And here what they're doing is they're taking the Lord's Supper and they're not communicating it. They're kind of communicating a distinction of we're better, we're you. And that's why Paul says you're really not celebrating the Lord's Supper. So that's the underlying problem here. And so now Paul is going to explain what does the Lord's Supper actually mean? Let's look at verse 23 here. It says this. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So the very first thing that Paul is doing, first of all, Paul is reminding them of the tradition, of the doctrine, of the teachings that he has already passed on to them directly from the Lord that they have failed to maintain. And so their abuse of the Lord's Supper really is an assault on what the Lord Jesus himself announced and what the Lord's Supper is supposed to symbolize, namely the cross of Jesus Christ, the work of the cross that he has accomplished for all of us. So how can Christians celebrate the work on the cross that brings us all together as one and yet looks down on a brother and sister in Christ? The answer is you can't. Because what does the cross of Christ mean? What does it celebrate? What does it point us to? It points us that we have been justified. We have been reconciled. We have been redeemed. And because of his work on the cross, we are accepted by God. We are united with Christ. We are united with one another. We were once enemies of God, strangers, exiles. And now we are the family of God, the people of God, adopted us to his family as brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is what it communicates. So what does the Lord's Supper symbolize? Uh, notice in the text, there's two phrases that we kind of have to unpack a little bit. One phrase is found in verse 24 when Jesus says, This is my body, which is for you. And then in verse 25, he says, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. 
Now, I don't want to bore you with the theological terms because you're probably not going to remember it, so I'm going to really try to explain it in a way that we can all understand. But throughout kind of uh, church history, there's been different ways of how Christians have interpreted, this is my body, this is my cup. Um, if you grew up in the Roman Catholic Church, uh, the Roman Catholic Church believed that the bread and the wine is a repeated sacrifice of Jesus that literally becomes his literal body and his blood, and that that is why it is a means of justifying grace. So in other words, here's why mass is so important. Because you recognize that throughout the week, what have you done? You've sinned. You've rebelled against God. But if you come to mass and you take the bread and you take the cup, it is the means by which Christ justifies you because he dies for you repeatedly for your sin and that bread and that cup literally becomes his body and his blood that you simply eat, you simply receive and that is why your salvation is secure based on the bread and the cup that transfigures into his body and to his blood. It is a repeated sacrifice. Um, Luther, at the Protestant Reformation start wrestling with it, saying, no, that we're not justified by works, but we're justified by faith. And so Luther kind of looks at communion and saying, no, it, the, the, the elements, the, the bread, the body, the bread and the cup is not um, literally his body and his blood, but rather Jesus is physically present in, with, and under. It is not a justifying means of grace, but rather a sanctifying means of grace. So it's not the elements that save you, but yet Jesus is physically present in these elements. And so I don't know which view is more confusing, the one of the Roman Catholics or the one of Luther as he's trying to kind of remain close to Catholicism of how he grew up and yet drawing a distinction that salvation is not by works, it's not by receiving the elements, but rather it is in Christ through faith in him, by his grace. So what do we believe? Here's what we believe as a church. We believe that Jesus' actual body and blood is not present at all. Like, this is, I don't know where it was bought, but it doesn't turn into his body. It doesn't, the, 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 the wine, the juice doesn't turn into his blood. And the reason why we say the bread and the wine is not his actual body and his actual blood, but rather symbolizes it for three reasons. Because I think when you read the passage, the most natural way of reading verses 23 to verse 25, it's almost naturally to read it as symbolic. Now, for some of us can say, well, the, the, the body kind of seems maybe literal, but then that leads me to our second reason. So if we, if we look at the, the statement between the bread and the cup, they almost seem to run parallel to each other. And so if we're uncertain about the first statement, well, maybe it's a little, we know for sure the second statement is symbolic. And because they run parallel, you cannot interpret one literal while the other one symbolic. Why? Because they go hand in hand together. And the third reason why we believe that Jesus' bread and the wine symbolizes his death for, for three reasons is because notice what Jesus says. When you partake of it, when you eat it, when you drink it, what are you doing? You're doing it in remembrance of him. So in other words, if it was a means of 
justifying grace, where it's literally him repeatedly dying and drinking for you, wouldn't he say, eat it and drink it so that you can be saved? But what does he say? Eat this, drink this, in remembrance of me. And then even in verse 26, he says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, what are you doing? You're proclaiming the Lord's death. And so the Lord's Supper is a precious memorial where we're reminded of Jesus' sacrificial death. But this is where we might differ a little bit from other churches. So, so other churches with us say, this is memorial. And it is. But I also think there is a spiritual element going on. I don't think it's just simply memorial where we remember, but I also think that Christ is physically present with us, but I do believe Christ is spiritually present with us. And here's why I say that. When we gather in the name of Jesus, who's with us? Jesus, his spirit here is with us. And so I think these elements, the Lord's Supper, is not a, a, a justifying grace, but a means of grace that sanctifies us. Because what it does is it kind of reorients our hearts and our minds. It ministers to our eyes, uh, to our taste, and to our smell. We remember of who Christ is and what he's done for us, and that we are sitting in the very presence of Christ as his people because the supper shows us that not only are we united with one another but we're also united with Jesus Christ and so my point of it is it's more than just us just doing something and remember there is something spiritual going on that ministers to our hearts and to our souls and to our minds and to our senses and if you think about how the Lord's Supper was instituted, it was a replacement of the Passover meal. So, so think about the Passover meal. The Passover meal was both a sacrifice and a covenant renewal ceremony in which Israel remembered the Exodus and the old covenant that God had inaugurated and the blood of the sacrificial animal. So in other words, when they celebrated the Passover, they were reminded, why does God accept them? Why can they be in their presence? Because of the blood of the sacrifice. And they're reminded that we are God's covenant people. That God has entered into a covenant with us. Because of the blood of the sacrifice. And so when Jesus celebrated the Passover meal, he kind of transitioned it and instituted of what we know as the Lord's Supper. And even though the Lord's Supper is no longer a sacrifice because the sacrifice of Jesus is once and for all. How many times did Jesus die for you? Once. What is Jesus doing right now? He is sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding and mediating for you. So even though it is not a repeated sacrifice for our sins, it certainly is a covenant renewal ceremony that is taking place by which we are reminded that I belong to Christ. Christ belongs to me. That I am his body, which means I am part of the church. Because what's the church? The body of Jesus Christ. So in a sense, it is a renewal ceremony where we remember Jesus' body and his blood, his death that has inaugurated the new covenant 
and that we are part of that covenant. And what I love is in verse 26, if, 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 if what the Lord's Supper symbolizes, the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross for us, it's also a proclamation of the gospel. That's why in verse 26 he says that whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, what are you doing? I love the word he's using. You are proclaiming. You're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. In other words, I just love how the Lord in his sovereignty has instituted these ordinances because when we read God's word, you're hearing me proclaim the gospel. But when we come to the Lord's table, what are you doing? You're in a sense proclaiming the gospel, but you are seeing it because there's two elements that represent his body and his blood. You are smelling it when you put it close to your mouth. You are tasting it. It's something visible for you. And it is all us proclaiming, look at what Christ has done for us on the cross. Look at how he has saved us and redeemed us and reconciled us and rescued us. We are his people. We get to share in this covenant. And for the unbelievers who are not participating, what are they doing? They are watching. They are bystanders as they seeing us proclaim the Lord's death. Now Paul is going to talk about, if that's what the Lord's Supper symbolizes and means as it points to Jesus in the finished work of the cross, now Paul is going to talk about what should our approach be to the Lord's Supper. Look at verse 27. So then... Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. Let each person examine himself in this way. Let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. Whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many are sick and ill among you and many have fallen asleep. If we were properly judging ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned with the world. So since celebrating the Lord's Supper is proclaiming Jesus' work on the cross, then it's easy for us to conclude that when a person abuses the Lord's Supper or misuses the Lord's Supper, then they're falsely proclaiming Jesus' work on the cross. And this is dangerous. And this is why Paul says, some of you have participated in an unworthy manner. And I think it's, some, it's a good question for us to ask, well, what does it mean to take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner? And, and I think there's two answers. One, specific in this context. And two, what is general to the church. So in the specific context, remember what was their biggest problem? How were they abusing the Lord's Supper? The Lord's Supper was not bringing them together. It was not uniting them with one another and with Christ. But what were they doing? It was causing division. It was marginalizing the poor, drawing a distinction between the wealthy and the poor. The haves are celebrating and feasting, and the have-nots are kind of put, put to the side. So for them, an unworthy manner is they were marginalizing the poor, and it was causing division. Okay? 
That was their context. But I think more in a general context, when I, we look at our church, like, like what does it mean for us as Christians today at Forest Park to, to, to participate in the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner? I think the best way to approach it, this unworthy manner kind of refers to approaching it in a hypocritical way. So when he says in an unworthy manner, it means participating in the Lord's Supper in a hypocritical way, meaning when we claim to celebrate church's unity... Because that's what the Lord's Supper does. We are united with Christ. We're united with one another. And there's division. That's hypocritical. That's one way. Or the other way is, when we claim to be in Christ, when we claim to be Christian, but we're really not. That's participating in a hypocritical way. Now, I think there's some false perception when we think in an unworthy manner, because what's the opposite of unworthy? Worthy. And so many of us think, okay, I should not participate in the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, which means I need to participate in the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. And so when you're thinking about unworthy and worthy, and I need to be worthy, what's your initial reaction? I need to confess all my sins. I need to clean myself up. I need to make myself worthy so that I can participate in the Lord's Supper. But what does the gospel teach you? What makes you worthy? The confession of your sins? You cleaning yourself? No, what makes you worthy is the very cross of Jesus Christ. So what it does not mean is all of a sudden we come to the table, oh, i got to confess my sin. i got to clean myself up because I'm not allowed to participate in an unworthy manner. No, that's not what that means. Because we need to be reminded that I can sit at this table and I am worthy not because of anything that I've done, but because of everything that Christ has done for me. That's number one. But then Paul says this, what must proceed... Before participation in the Lord's Supper. Like, what needs to happen so that I make sure I am not abusing the Lord's Supper or taking it in an unworthy manner? Look, look at verse 28. Let a person examine himself in this way. Let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. In other words, each and every one of you need to enter into a time of self-examination. But what do you need to examine? Well, I think the answer to that question is, what does it mean to participate in the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner? A, you say you're a Christian, but you're really not. Or B, you're causing division in the church. Or you're not living in unity with your brothers and sisters in Christ. So what must happen in self-examination is not a confession of sin so that you can be worthy, but what should be happening in self-examination is this idea of, am I trusting Christ as my Lord and Savior? Am I believing that what He's done on the cross for me is enough? That's one. And number two is this. Am I living at peace? As far as I know with my brothers and sisters in Christ, am I pursuing unity or am I sowing disunity? Like that is important for us. Because guess what? The Lord's Supper is not this individual moment just between you and Jesus. 
But it is a communal moment between you, Jesus, with your brothers and sisters in Christ. So why sit at the table if you're sowing seeds of division? Why sit at the table if you're spreading rumors or participating in these rumors and not pursuing reconciliation? Why sit at the table knowing that your brother and sister has confronted you in your sin and you're just saying, you know what, I don't really care what you think. That's not working towards unity. That's working towards disunity. And that is what a Christian must do in self-examination. Am I trusting Christ that what He's done for me is enough? Am I living as far as I know in peace and in unity with other brothers or sisters in Christ? Or am I holding a, a secret grudge against them because they have sinned against me and I refuse to seek reconciliation with them and I don't want to approach them? So what should we do? Self-examine. Go reconcile with brothers and sisters in Christ. Go seek the unity of the church. Make sure that our eyes are fixed on him and believing that our salvation is in Christ and in Christ alone and in not anything that we could do to make ourselves worthy. Um, Paul says, here's, here's the reason for why self-examination is so important before participation in the Lord's Supper. Look at verse 29. He says this, for whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body, eats and drinks judgment upon himself. So, so, so what does Paul mean to eat and drink without recognizing the body? Um, I think there can be, there's two options, and I think both options couldn't be correct. I think one might be better than the other. Um, the body of Christ could be literally, you're eating and drinking without recognizing Christ. In other words, you're a non-believer, and you're eating and drinking without surrendering your life to Christ, without trusting Christ for your salvation. Option number two is, who's also the body of Christ? The church. Okay? So you're eating and drinking without recognizing the church in a sense. In other words, you're either not submitting to church, not living in community, or you're sowing seeds of disunity in the church. I think a better reading um, between the two because of the context. Again, what was the problem that the church of Corinth struggled with? Unity. So what were they doing? They weren't recognizing the church. They were not living in unity. I think that's a better reading for the context, but I think both can be true. And this is why it's so important to self-examine so that we do not eat and drink judgment upon ourselves so that we make sure I'm united with Christ, and I'm united with the body of Christ. And this is also why we believe like communion shouldn't be just something you do in your homes. Because who should be present for communion? The church. Because it's not an individual supper that you and Jesus get to enjoy together. But what is it? It's a communal supper that the church comes together and gets to celebrate it as they look to Jesus Christ. And here's the consequences. If you eat and drink in an unworthy manner without recognizing the body, look at verse 30. He says this, this is why many are sick and ill among you, and many have fallen asleep. You're like, what does that mean? Paul says, some of you have died. 
because you have abused the Lord's Supper. And what we need to understand is, and I think it's important for us, not every sickness, not every death is is a result of God's judgment because of sin. For example, uh, when there was a man born blind, the disciples told Jesus, hey Jesus, this guy's born blind, who sinned, his mom or his dad? And what did Jesus say? Neither. He was born blind so that God will be glorified. But there are times when someone sinned and God struck them down. I think about Ananias and Sapphira. What did they do? They lied. And what happened? Lord killed them. He struck them down. That serves as a warning for all of us. Why? Because this table even though it's made of wood and, and the, the actual elements are not holy, what it represents and what it points to is holy. It is instituted by our Lord Jesus Himself. And we as Christians should not approach this table willy-nilly, but rather we should approach this table with a sense of fear, of awe, and reverence of the Lord Jesus Christ and what it represents and what it symbolizes. For even though all these objects might be cheap, what it points to is far from being cheap because the death of Jesus and His blood, who can put a price tag to it? You can't. And this is why we should view the table, not the physical things in a sacred way, but what it points to and symbolizes in a sacred way. Paul says this, that Christians will not experience judgment if they examine themselves, discern, and judge their own lives. So, so, so he says in verse 32, like what's the difference between God judging believers, Christians, and non-believers, non-Christians? Look at verse 32, he says this, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned with the world. In other words, the difference between God's judgment between Christians and non-Christians is God's judgment to Christians lead to discipline. God's judgment to non-Christians leads to condemnation. And so when God disciplines us, what does it mean to be disciplined? It means to be corrected. It means to be trained. It means to be built up, to, to build character. And so God, even in His grace towards us, when we misuse the table, for example, we're living in disunity or or, or we're living in sin. God is gracious enough not to condemn us and to destroy us, but to discipline us, to train us, and to correct us. Hebrews 11, I think 5, uh, Hebrews 12, verses 5 to 11 says this. Uh, Here's a real paraphrase of the whole passage. God disciplines those He loves. He is treating you as sons. So don't see it as a bad thing. Praise the Lord that He's loving enough to discipline us. Which means, unfortunately, disunity is a reality in our churches. Why? Because we're all sinners. We're in the process of being perfected. And sin becomes a reality, and yet God actively deals with us in our sins, and He disciplines us, and He trains us. And this is why when we come and we sit at the table, it's so important for us to examine our hearts. Like, am I living to the best of my knowledge and unity with my other brothers and sisters in Christ that I'm in fellowship with? Am I looking to Christ and trusting that my salvation is secure in Him and Him alone, and that His blood is sufficient? 
then let's participate. Let's eat, let's drink, let's celebrate. Uh, We're almost done. Paul now gives a solution real quick. Verse 33, he says, Therefore, my brothers and my sisters, when you come together, what are you supposed to do? Welcome one another. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home, so that when you gather together, you will not come under judgment. I will give instructions about the other matters whenever I come. I just love this phrase that he says, when you gather, what are you supposed to be doing? Welcome one another. Why? Again, think about the gospel here. Christ has, God welcomes us. Because we'll welcome a bill. That's not a word. No, because of what Christ has done. God has accepted us and He brings us into His family because of what Jesus Christ has done. And if God welcomes us, how should we treat one another? We should welcome one another. Like one of the things that we need to recapture in our society as Christians is we should be the most hospitable people. Why? Because of what Jesus has done for us. We were enemies. We were strangers. And we were welcomed into his family. What do we do with enemies and strangers? We welcome them in. We say, come be a part. Let us point you to our Father in heaven. Let us point you to the work of our older brother Jesus Christ and what he's accomplished for us. Let us celebrate Let us look to him and trust in him. Let us treat one another, regardless of your background, regardless of your race, regardless of your socioeconomic class, regardless of all the baggage and all the sin that you bring in, because Jesus has paid for it in full. He has made you a son and a daughter, and we are brothers and sisters, and we welcome one another. So here's our application here. This commentary I used, I thought did such a great job uh, with the response to the Lord's Supper. As we are about to celebrate the Lord's Supper, um, he says this, and I thought it was so helpful. When we participate in the Lord's Supper, we need to look in five directions. He had six. I just combined it to five because six was too many. Um, The first direction we need to look to is we look within. When we approach the Lord's Supper, we need to look within. In other words, we need to examine our hearts, whether we have sinful relational tension with other, with other fellow church members. Are we fostering unity or are we fostering division? We look within. Second thing is after we look within, we look up. What do we remember? We remember that we don't get to sit at the table because we're worthy. We get to sit at the table because Christ has made us worthy. Because what does the table ultimately point to? The work of Jesus Christ on the work of Jesus Christ on the cross for us that he has accomplished for us sufficiently once and for all. So we look within, we look up, and the third direction is what do we do? The Lord's Supper is not just this individual pursuit, but we also look around. I know we in America we don't like looking around. Look around you. Look how we all look different. And yet, what is true about all of us if we're in Christ? We 
are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are all sinners, saved by God's grace, in Christ through faith. We trust in Him. And we remind one another, we are united in Christ and we're united with one another. And after we look around, we look outward. Because what does the Lord's Supper visibly proclaim? It proclaims the death of Jesus Christ. It proclaims the gospel to the watching world. And the last direction is this, we look forward. In other words, what does this point to? It points to the great wedding feast that is awaiting for us. When Jesus comes back to make all things new. Let me pray for us as we participate in the Lord's Supper. Lord, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the supper that you have given us, that we get to participate, not because of anything we've done, but because of the work that you've finished for us on the cross. Lord, as we participate in this, can you stir our hearts and our affections? Can you help us to be in awe of you? Can you help us to be overwhelmed by the work that you've done? Can you help us to examine our hearts, Lord, if there's any sin that we have against a brother or sister, where there's seeds of disunity, Lord, help us to repent, help us to reconcile and mend those relationships. Can you help us to look around and see the preciousness of the body of Christ, that we're all brothers and sisters united in you? And Lord, for those who do not know you, can it be a visible display of your gospel. And Lord, may this be a reminder that when you come back, you are making all things new.